Sports is a lens through which to look at all the issues that matter in the rest of life. Jody, he basically created ESPN's approach to serialized podcasts. So what was always the big question at 30 for 30. It has to always mean something more. I had a rough stretch where I was like frustrated that my job was not doing all the things that I wanted to do for me. I would argue there was no worse feeling than when you're like fighting against your own story. Well, Jody, thanks for inviting us around. Thanks for having us in the house. Hey, you want to paint the scene here? We're in my go, living go room. No, go on, you paint it. We're in my living room here in Brooklyn, New York. There's a cat sitting on a table. It's very, you know, it's wonderful. It's very cozy. It's a beautiful place. It's also like 75 degrees in November, which is freaking everyone out. It's uh, weird yeah. and too hot. Yeah. But yeah, lovely neighborhood, lovely place. Um, you will be a voice that my students will know because... I'll have made them listen Good. to some 30 for 30s Good. ahead of this. So they're going to have a week of listening to some okay. of that stuff. So how did you come to be the guy who did all that? Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, the short story is I was in public radio for a long time at WNYC here in New York. And then I left that after seven years or so where I'd done a mix of talk and some reported stuff, some documentary stuff. But, you know, my home base there was a talk show. Um, a sort of daily call-in talk show um, that I was a producer on. Uh, and then I left and I ended up at this place called 538, which is Nate Silver's shop that run, that does polling analysis and political analysis. And that was really my world was politics. For the reasons that corporations make weird decisions, ESPN owned 538 at that point in time. This is when they had like Grantland and they had the undefeated and they weirdly had this other little, no, they had bought 538. Um, so I was working at 538 for a number of years covering, I covered the 2016 election. I hosted a politics podcast there. We shared, this is, this is the actual answer. We shared a floor with the 30 for 30 folks. No way. And I would just got to know them in the like coffee shop. Or the, like getting coffee, you know, every yeah. day. Um, and Libby Geist, who ran 30 for 30, was like, you know, we hear that you know about podcasting. We've always talked about wanting to do podcasting out of 30 for 30. At that point, it was 30 for 30 was a, a, approaching being 10 years old, really established. A lot of people were thinking about getting into audio. And so I said, you know, obviously I was a huge fan. Um, and so I said, sure, I'll help you kind of puzzle this through. Um, and her first thought was like, oh, what we're thinking is we'll take, you know, that we want to play with taking the audio from the documentaries, ripping it. And you're laughing like someone else has yeah. pitched this for oh, yeah. you as well, yeah. right? Been Classic, there. like exec. Hey, here's a neat shortcut. Uh, we'll take that. We'll rip the audio from the documentaries. We'll recut it and we'll put those out as audio documentaries. And as Libby was telling me this in the coffee shop, in the back of my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to help you do that. Because then we're going to realize that that doesn't work. And then I'm going to tell you that we should actually, you know, invest in this for real and make a, and, and like make original documentaries. And that's kind of what happened. We played with make putting them together. They just didn't work because they're two different mediums. You have to report them in two different ways. Uh, and then I was like, look, I think that there's a chance to really make, you know, the audio equivalent of what's so good about 30 for 30 sports stories with depth. They're really good at themes, but you know, to do it right, you're going to have to really invest and do it from the start. And so for a while I was doing both jobs. I was like covering the election and covering politics at 538, but then also building this team at 30 for 30. And then the sort of balance of power shifted over the course of a year or two. And then finally I just went full on at 30 for 30. And, you know, we did it that way. We like basically, 
hired a team of producers. We commissioned some stories, but we reported some in-house. And that's the path. And the one, the one last thing I'll say is that it really just like ended up being really wonderful from a, it just expanded the, the kinds of, the kinds of stories and the number of stories we could mm-hmm. tell. And so, you know, there were a number of stories that would come in for 30 for 30 and they wouldn't work as films for whatever reason, or we'd realize, oh, they're better for audio. And it just gives you, it just literally gives you another chance to say yes to a mm-hmm. good story, uh, to have this other outlet. And, you know, there were also a number of stories that like, for whatever reason, hadn't worked or been like sitting on the kind of, can we do this? Can we not for the film side? And we were able to take them on, on the audio side. And we would also like occasionally have fights, you know, a story would come in and be like, oh, you know, we really want to do this on the audio side. We want to do this on the film side. Or I would pitch stories. This was the worst. I would pitch stories as audio docs and then they'd, it, it, people would decide to turn it into a film. And I'd be like, shoot, you took that from me. But it worked, you know, it worked in both directions. So what then in your mind is the difference between those two? What works yeah. audio wise that doesn't work visually or what works visually that can't work? Yeah. Audio-wise, I mean, largely, you know, there's similarities because I just tend to believe like, you know, good documentary work is good documentary work. And, you know, all the things that make 30 for 30 is good are largely the same things that make 30 for 30 films work are largely the same things that make the audio work, which is like you have to find a story that feels like it's not just, oh, this cool thing happened, but it has to teach you something bigger. Obviously, yeah, archival is a huge element, um, right? And you have more tools at your disposal in, 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 in a visual medium, and you can have moments and you can sort of land themes um, by playing with visuals and archival and even putting stuff up on a screen. Whereas, you know, in audio, like, there are ways to, and I'm a big fan of ways, you know, I don't like to beat people over the head, but you do have to kind of like hold people's attention in a way. And, and, and in your characters, you know, they have to convey all of the information in their voice, in their story. Obviously there's some narration. Our philosophy at 30 for 30 with regards to narration was largely like, let's get out of the way, right? Let's let the characters do the work. We'll nudge it along. But it's very, it was, it's very different from like this American life or some other documentaries where it's, we never at 30 for 30 did like, here's what I think, or here's my take, or here's how I connect with this story. It was much more kind of like, let me move this along. So I would say, you know, there are, there are, there are ways, frankly, to sort of work your way out of narrative problems in film yeah. that are harder in, in audio. Yeah. Right. And so we really had to make sure like the characters, Ha- the characters in our story really have to give us the full story. They have to really bring themselves to it. And um, one thing that we talked about a lot was access in two different ways of defining that word. So one was just access. Like, you know, who are the characters in the story? We need, we need them, right? We can't, there's no workarounds in audio. Like if you're going to tell a story about this person, you have to have them. Whereas in film, you know, you could maybe potentially fill it with archival or fill it with other, you know, but like if we're telling a story about someone, we need to have access to their time. Hmm. Then we talked about emotional access. Okay, fine. Okay. We've convinced them that they're going to sit with us for four hours, but are they really going to go there? Are they really going to open up? Are we going to hear it in their voice? Um, Because I mean, this is what, this is that cliche about audio, but it isn't, it is an intimate medium. And if someone is not bringing it in their voice, if they're not connecting and really bringing you that story, um, it's just going to fall flat in a way that, uh, that I think with films, you can sometimes work around that. 
So if you're not going to be, you're hosting it, but you're not going to be narrating it. Yeah. When it comes to doing the interviews, are there different sort of stylistics involved in that than there are in other interviews that you've done? Yeah, for sure. And, and it was particularly tough with athletes, right? Because I think athletes are used to uh, two things. Athletes are used to like, oh, I'm doing an interview. Okay, great. Uh, I'll call you from my cell phone for five minutes when I'm driving from here. And we're like, no, how about we fly to your house and we do three, four hour sessions? And then four months later, we might come back and need another couple hours. You yeah. Know? Like, so there's that. Um, and then frankly, like a lot of athletes aren't great talkers, yeah. you know? And so one thing, you know, so you just have to sort of cast and make sure that you're going to have people who can really open up in that way. Um, But in terms of specific techniques, I mean, one is I also think that works to your advantage. When you walk in, you know, like I interviewed LeBron James for an episode, Dwayne Wade for an episode. You know, we interviewed some high profile athletes. I feel like when they walk into where an interview is going to happen and there's lights and there's cameras and there's a makeup person, there's a ton of people, you know, running around. I think, especially for people who are media trained, have done a lot of media, like something switches in their brain mm. and they're just like, okay, I know what this is. I'm going to give them five sound bites and we'll, I'll be done in 20 yeah. minutes. And for us, you walk in, it's just me. It's like what we're doing here. It's just yeah. you and me. We're sitting across from a the table. There's aren't a million people wandering around. It's just a little microphone. It, I think that signals something. And so I would try and even just kind of be like casual and intimate, just even in your body language and your yeah. presentation. But I think the natural setup of audio is nice in terms of just signaling, hey, this is a this is different from what you're used to doing. Um, I'll, I'll mention two other sort of techniques that we used. One was I had a there's a editor I really love who talks about how like the best tape feels like someone is describing a movie in their head. Yeah. You know, it's visual. It's we all know this, but like the great, the best tape is visual. It paints a picture. It it gets the audience to them as they're listening. Paint a picture in their head. So we would often prompt with with visuals. Okay. And so like we're talking to someone about a moment on the field or whatever, and we would like have an iPad and play that moment, oh, cool. and then get them to describe it yeah. and talk about it. But just it would just bring up those. You know, it just put them in that headspace where mm-hmm. they're describing it. And sometimes we would just literally be like. You know, can you just talk through this, describe it as, as it's going, you know? Um, and then the other thing that we talk about a lot is like, cause you know, cause I mentioned, you know, you want like your guests, especially when our narrator isn't as involved as in other shows, your, your, your voices, your characters have to do a lot of work yeah. and they have to do work on kind of two levels. So one is just like the narrative plot level. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And then on top of that narr- that plot arc is the emotional arc. Mm. And so we would often do interviews where the first interview we'd do with someone is just sort of tell me this story as if you were watching it play out or as, it, as you remember it or as if you were almost like reading it on Wikipedia or what, you know, like give me the this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And then we would often go back and do another interview and literally be like, when you said this happened, how are you feeling? When you said this happened, how are you feeling? Okay. And just like try and get that connect, connect the plot to the emotion. Yeah. And you know, it's tough to get people to do that. Often you get people to do that after you've done one long interview with them. You've built that trust. Then you can go back. You don't want to go in right away and be like, so how did you feel when you didn't qualify for the Olympics after the entire world was waiting for you to do so? You know, yeah. you want them to just talk about it and explain it. You build that trust and then you can go back and get them into that moment. Yeah. But, you know, that idea of like the plot arc 
to an interview and the emotional arc to an interview is, uh, is I think, really important to keep in mind. So the, the episode that you were sort of referring to, the hoodies up episode, uh-huh. um, I'm guessing you didn't get two interviews with LeBron no. or with Dwayne. Yes. Uh, we got a longish interview with Dwayne Wade, which is, which is quite nice. With LeBron, um, we were trying for like a year, almost a year to get that. And I literally had in, uh, on the stool over there in the yeah. room that we're sitting in, I had my LeBron go bag, which is basically like, <laughs> what's going to happen is I'm probably going to get a call and be like, can you be in Cleveland tomorrow? Yeah. And I just like, we'll go. And yeah. it was at the very last minute I got that call. I was like, come to practice tomorrow, you know. Um, come to the, come to the training facility. It was like during the first round of the playoffs when like there were more days off in between games or whatever. So I flew to Cleveland, got in a car, went to the training facility, sat in this like little room where I heard practice happening next door. And all of a sudden I hear like a whistle blow. Yeah. And they're like, all right, everyone but Braun, like over here, this drill. And then the door opens and like LeBron comes sprinting in from like the middle of practice. Wow. And I was like, oh man. You know what, like to, you know, to what we were talking about earlier. What kind yeah. of what kind of tape am I going to get? How do you chill him out? How do I chill him out? And you know, but LeBron's LeBron, and yeah. like I, I think the world of him. And one of the things I think is really special about him is this ability to like switch. And the, a lot of the great athletes are this way. They do it in game, and they do it in their life. They can like switch mindsets and switch gears, and they've trained themselves. And so he came in, and I was like, "Do you know what? You know, do you know what we're doing? Do you know what we're up to?" And he was like. Yep, I got it. You know, I know what we're talking about. And I was like, okay, let me start asking you questions. Um, and I could just see him switch. And he was like emotionally open. He had things to say. He had new things to say. But I think we got 11 minutes of tape, okay. you know, um, and then we used like nine of it. Um, but, you know, you can't build a whole episode just around that. So we needed to have. So in that episode, for instance, right, if people listen to it, we have like some LeBron, we have some Dwayne Wade who did open up. We had Udonis Haslam who was really big. But then we have Trayvon's family and we also have some of the activists. And the activists were the ones who were really able to sit down with us and open up and, and talk us through. So you need someone. It maybe doesn't necessarily have to be your main character mm. or the person at the heart of it. But, you know, that was one where we were like, well, we can't – LeBron can't be the character who's taking us from start to finish. We no. have to have other places where we start and then we turn to LeBron and then we go elsewhere. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, I think the best example of that is the Dan and Dave episode, which oh, yeah. was the very first episode. And that was one where we did like four, four hour interviews with, with Dan O'Brien because we just need, and he really opened up for us. And so then he was the main character and he was we, there was no other way to tell that story other than having him be really sort of open and vulnerable. Mm. So both of those episodes and most of the episodes, it's not necessarily about, um, a sporting Sports. moment. <laughs> yeah, but, no, but yes and no. It goes yeah. to some of the stuff that you're working on now, but yeah. Yeah. it's about human stories yes. and about life. So the Travon story yeah. isn't about yeah. LeBron. Correct. It isn't about Dwayne Wade. But getting them to tell the yeah. story gets a whole new audience to that story. Yeah. And I mean, that is, I mean, you know, I feel like, especially for a place like 30 for 30, story selection was the most important thing. And it was often along those lines of what we were talking about earlier, the so what, you know, mm-hmm. and it has to always mean something more. The sports is, you know, I'm working on a new show now where we very explicitly say this, you know, sports is a lens mm-hmm. and it is a really, I think a really good lens through which to look at all, all the issues that matter in the rest of life, right? Politics and race and, and 
joy and personal relationships and all that stuff. Uh, you know, a cultural moment. But yeah, every 30 for 30 needed to connect in some way um, to a larger cultural moment, teach us something bigger, or, you know, or it needed to really be a story about someone, someone needed to really have changed. So you could stay on the field, you could stay with the person, with the team or the, the athlete, but it can't just be, oh, this cool thing happened. It has to have been like, this was an inflection point and it mattered in some way, either for the athlete, but more often than not even bigger than that for the world, for some larger community, for, you know, the way we understand something. So yeah, that was always the, the big push. And I would say the majority of stories that didn't get greenlit or didn't pass muster were because of that. They just didn't have that bigger so what. Something we talk about a lot in class recently is career paths. Yeah. And how, I guess, my career path, my group of um, lecturers' career paths won't be the same as what this gang of students are going to experience. Um, What's your sort of career trajectory at the moment and what do you think someone coming into the industry is going to experience now? I mean, at the moment, you know, since the last two years, I've been, I've been freelancing, you know, and I, and I've been, you know, I'm, I was at a couple, I was at a few different shops where I feel like I established myself nicely. And so now I am able to like freelance and have connections and, you know, but I've always had, and, you know, I do feel like just age wise, I feel like my generation, so to speak of radio makers was maybe the first one. It was either the first one where like, the, you're on this career path and this is going to be you for the next 30 years wasn't viable or it was the last one for whom that was viable. You know, yeah. I feel like I was right at a inflection point. And so throughout my career, even when I've had like, quote unquote, you know, career jobs, I've never, I've always done other stuff too. And I've always like freelance and I've always collaborated with friends and I've always just like cooked up stuff on the side. And part of that is just, I'm wired that way. I like doing stuff. Part of that has been strategic, you know, and that realizing that like, I'm probably not going to have this job for 30 years, you know, and so I need to make connections and try other stuff. Um, If I'm giving, you know, advice or just sort of things for people to think through, the other big one that I learned the hard way, but then has also been really valuable for me is, you know, I had a period at WNYC where I worked, you know, where I think it's inevitable, but you know, after five, six, seven years in a job, you just kind of get itchy feet. Right. And I had a, you know, a rough stretch where I was like frustrated that my job was not doing all the things that I wanted to do for me. Right. I'm sure you have felt this too. Right. And I, and at that point, like I never, I didn't have like hosting ambitions at that point, but I was like, Oh, maybe I want to do some hosting. That'd be nice. And this job is a producer job and, or just whatever. It was getting stale and I was getting, you know, I was trying to, Spread my wings a little bit. And after like a good amount of time of just being frustrated with my job, what I realized was like, what I really should do is kind of like make a list of all the things that my job does for me and then make a list of all the things that it doesn't. And especially I was in my you know late 20s at that point. I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. I had like flexibility just in terms of hours in the day. I was like, just go, just go set up other projects that will check those boxes for you. So I was like, oh, I'd like to host. So I went and I like started a live event series where I hosted the thing. I was like, oh, I want to work with these people. So I just like started pitching them freelance stories. I was like, oh, I want to, you know. And what I found was not only did it like check those boxes and satisfy those itches, but it actually had this like feedback effect where then I started to really value my job job for what it was, Mm. right? Oh, wow, look, it 
it's still all these wonderful things, you know, that I'd forgotten about because I was grumpy about all the things it wasn't for me. And so I just feel like I've kept that with me throughout that like no job is going to check every single box and just be very conscious about like, you want to have a job that you like and you want to work on projects that you like, but you know, be, be sort of very, very conscious about realizing what is it that this thing does for me? What are the things that it doesn't try and fill those things in other ways. And I've, and now I'm that I'm a freelancer. I'm, you know, that's basically what I have to do is like some projects I'm a host, some projects I'm a producer, some, and you know, and then hopefully in, in some, you know, in aggregate, I'm kind of doing all the things that I want to do and I'm satisfied in whatever sort of larger way. Okay. If the students take something away from this, hopefully they'll take away the so what, I think. Yeah. I think that's probably, that's yeah. the thing in my head that jumps out at me from this is, right, I've got a story idea. Is it good enough? Yeah. Does it pass the test? Yeah. Yeah, because there, I would argue there is no worse feeling in the world than trying to, than when you're like fighting against your own story. Mm. And I think we've all felt that and it's inevitable even with great stories, but you know, Four months in, five months in, however long in, you're like, ah, oh, shit, it's just not there. Yeah. Like this isn't like, the, the the voices aren't there, the characters. So it's really test it in advance, do development on it, really, really, really be rigorous, so that when you decide to tell a story, because there's no better feeling in the world than when you're just kind of like the story's there, the voices are there, the characters there, and all you're trying to do is just sort of like. Help the river flow, right? Give a little logic to the story, you know. Uh, you know, you feel like you have nothing but great choices, right? And you just have to kind of, and and I think all of that starts at the at the very very beginning. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I mean, I think that was the secret at, at thirty for thirty was sort of development and 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 choosing choosing the right stories. Well, thank you for letting me in your house. Of course, and thank and you. The cat has been all the over cat's been really good. What's the cat's name? This is this is Blanche. We oh, have Blanche. A cat named Rose. Who's well, Blanche awesome. and me are getting on very well. Yeah, you've got yeah. all of it. Uh, no, I was going to say, <laughs> looking very, very good. Uh, thank you as well for making the Thirty for Thirty podcast. Thank you. Because I wouldn't have got maybe five documentaries commissioned with the BBC had you not sort of proved that yeah. sports can work. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of my career directory that I kind of <laughs> owe to your coffee shop visits. Yeah. Well, what? Um. Well, wait. Tell. I want to. I want to know. You can play this for your students or not, but like, what did, what did you feel like you need to convince them um, was possible or what, I think the what hum- was different? The, the human side of sports. So what you guys did that related to people who don't necessarily like sports yeah. was I think that they didn't realize that you could tell the story of, so one of the documentaries I made was um, about Wales qualifying for the European Championships. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and that's quite a, sports story and then you bring in the fans and what it means to people's lives and all of a sudden you've got a different journey yeah and convincing them that that wasn't about sports but it was was only possible by showing them some of the stuff that had already happened so yeah yeah, i do owe you quite a lot yeah and i mean you know i think that's one of the beauties of 30 for 30 is like all the folks who come from who work there even though it's nestled within espn they're all documentary folks you know and like they they come their instincts are more are much more about documentary than about sports and it's just like good characters good archival something that feels like it's bigger you know and that's not to say that like sports isn't really cool and really fun and like you should revel in those moments too but i just feel like if you're going to spend so much time on a story it should mean something you know it should mean something bigger (laughs) 